Hi, I'm Allie Gerbs. And I'm Julia Prescott. And we're, and we're going, going round, round Springfield. Springfield. <laughs> Did that feel good for you? <laughs> it felt awful. <laughs> um, oh, well. Oh, well, that's just how the intro goes. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm so excited that we are getting into the holidays and that it, there's a little bit of cheer uh, since the last time we recorded. Uh, I think uh, Biden has since won. Hopefully by the time this airs, Trump didn't steal it back. Um, right, <laughs> that's the, right, that's right. the problem with recording in advance. But <laughs> We don't timestamp our episodes that much because we consider them to be evergreen topics, but I feel like <laughs> we'd be remiss in not pointing out that there is a difference in vibe from a pre-Biden America <laughs> to a post-Biden America. Yes. So I'm basking in that glow. It's, oh, uh, yeah. you know, golden hour all the time uh, now <laughs> in this podcast world. And, and I, what can I say? I got what I wanted for Christmas early. I love it. Uh, Well, what I want for Christmas this year is to have Donna Carey on our podcast, and that's what I'm going to get myself. (laughs) So we can uh, definitely make that happen. (laughs) Oh my God, it's Donick. He has a big bow on. Hello. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was that was also totally a surprise. I wasn't scheduled I and you just said that and uh no. I got an alert on it. Oh on my the, god. Internet. On Citizen yeah. it alerted that's amazing. Santa <laughs> is yeah. real, Christmas cheer is real. Our <laughs> podcast is slowly becoming the Pee-wee's uh holiday it's special. My favorite. Yes, oh my god. <laughs> yes, yes. Citizen said there's a naked guy with a <laughs> half a loaf of bread on the corner and you wanted me on your podcast. And I was that's like, Well, amazing. I can do I'm into one of those two things. Uh, Well, Donick, thank you for coming on our show. Um, You uh, are someone that we are such a fan of, and we loved talking about The Simpsons with you in the past, and now it will be fun to kind of go through kind of how you got to the place you are today. Um, We'll talk about different things you've written on, uh, different things that you've produced, acted in, uh, if you feel so inclined. We actually just got off of uh, doing a really fun thing with you um, for your music program, Music. And uh, before we get into all the Simpsons and everything else, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that and uh, what what you guys do and uh, how people can uh, spend their money in a fun and helpful way this Christmas or holidays whatever you celebrate yeah so so muzak is you can you can learn more about it at muzak.org it's uh m-u-s-a-c-k uh it was born now about 12 years ago um uh, at my where i grew up on nantucket island um i was having a 40th birthday party and we were hanging out i reunited a ska punk band from high school uh for this party and we were all hanging out and it was it was super fun to get back together with friends who I hadn't seen in 20, 30 years, well, 20, 25 years, and um, play music again. And we were all on the island and where we went to high school and, and stuff. On Nantucket, it's an interesting place because it's very wealthy and there's a lot of, of uh, exposed to a lot of crazy fun stuff in the summer. But the winter is very working class and it uh, the harbor freezes and things shut down. And it's very claustrophobic. And I always described it as a little bit like The Shining, where it gets crazier and crazier and crazier. And by February, March, people are literally going insane. (laughs) The the sad part of that is there is a lot of alcoholism and drug abuse and um, teen suicide. And the year year that we were getting together 
and doing this reunion, there had been, I think it was three, there might've been 14 suicides and it's a very small mm. community. And that really trickled through everybody's life that winter. And we were all talking and going like, well, how did we get through the winters when we were growing up there? And then we just kept coming back to like music, music, music is we, we discovered the specials and would all learn how to play the songs. Elvis Costello would put out a new album. We'd learn how to play the songs. We'd pass them around. Uh, the Dead Kennedys would come out. Oh my God, what's the Dead Kennedys? And we'd all learn that and whatever. Um, and, and the Grateful Dead and, and just everything. All music was, was like this sort of savior for us. So not really knowing what else to do. This is the long version. Sorry. Um, I love it. <laughs> I mean, it's a podcast, baby. <laughs> right, right. That's right. That's right. Phil, tell me what, what I should keep filling. Um, yeah. I, I went in and I just talked to the music teacher at the high school that year. And I was like, what's going on from your perspective? And he was like, I don't really know about the teen suicide. I don't know what to do. But I do know I have 10 kids who want to play guitar and I have no guitars. And oh. it was it was one of those little lightning bolts that we were talking about earlier is like every once in a while you get a little crack of light that you're like oh that's something I could actually do I can get I can help get 10 guitars so we we just made that party about raising money to get 10 guitars very simply I gave we gave them to the school we all felt good about that and then um six months later the, the teacher called and was like hey does your charity have 10 more guitars I have 10 more kids who, who want to play guitar Aww. And I was like, my charity? Okay. So that's where, <laughs> so we set up a charity. And that's started amazing. There. <laughs> that's so great. It started there and then has grown since then to, um, we just started listening to other music programs, other music teachers who at least seem to understand music the way we do and want to share it the way we do. And um, so we have programs in everywhere from Alaska to the Navajo Reservation to the East Bay, the three o'clock rock kids. Sometimes we'll support an existing program and sometimes we'll help set up one initially. But mm -hmm. we have a, about 5,000 plus kids now that we support every year and we get great videos and songs and stories and do fundraisers. It's super fun. That's so cool. Yeah. And uh, we just uh, were part of an episode of your, uh, you're doing like a drive-in talk show, which I think is such a fun way to kind of go about the lockdown regulations. So you've been choosing some of your favorite friends and people to come on and talk and you'll actually play some videos and clips at the drive-in. Is that how that goes? Yeah. So what, what we um, did most of our pandemic out, we went back to my hometown on Nantucket and hung out all summer. I'm back in LA now, but um, we, they, they set up a drive-in cause there's nowhere else to go really. And um, I just started doing something we're calling the last talk show, which you can check out at Muzak. Uh, at, I guess it's at Muzak's, YouTube channel, uh, Muzak, The Last Talk Show. But we've done 14 episodes, and it just seemed like, you know, when I looked at the schedule of movies, I was like, oh, I kind of know someone who's related to that one, or I know someone who did this. And it's been everyone from, like, you know, I knew the prop guy, uh, the, the prop master who did the Harry Potter movies and made the giant spiders and stuff. And oh was like, God. oh. Oh let's my just talk. God. <laughs> let's just, <laughs> so let's cool. just talk to let's just talk to him about like how did he do that? Um, and then some of them have been like you know one crazy summer was shot in Nantucket and I got four members of the cast to chime in and remember you know how how it was shooting that and what it was That's like. So cool. Um, and uh, I talked to Chris France from the Talking Heads, the the drummer in the Talking Heads, about Stop Making Sense, and uh, Peter Billingsley about a Christmas story, and it's been. Um, 
we showed a Rocky Horror Picture Show, and I, I got Barry Bostwick to talk about being proud. <gasps> and I'm obsessed with Barry Bostwick because I love Spin City also, and he's the mayor, and I adore him. <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. He's very crushable. <laughs> yeah, he is. He is in silver <laughs> fox mode now, but uh, at full, yeah. still crushable. Um, <laughs> I know. I, so it's been really like uh, weirdly like just doing podcasts kind of with some video so that you can like throw up uh, some little pictures of this or that or a little bit of history and it's been really fun. I also bugged the Simpsons once. We did a Simpsons Halloween um, episode and I had uh, Matt Selman and, and three other writers from the show on their lunch break. <laughs> all, you know, they, they're on Zoom all day, but I got them to talk about their Halloween episodes and then we, I, you guys just joined me for the Simpsons Christmas one. So we're showing four or five Simpsons episodes talking about a little bit behind the scenes and a little bit how they were made. And um, people can watch those episodes on YouTube too. Yeah. So they, they, they premiere at the drive-in on Nantucket and then they're out there so people can watch them. That's so cool. And uh, before we kind of go through some of the other projects that you've worked on, we just want to say how cool it was that some of the students have been working on Simpsons songs. So listeners of our podcast probably know that I've written a few Simpsons songs. I love the music. We both love the music so much. Julia, your Simpsons episode features music very heavily and in a really cool way. I'm getting some residuals from uh, yeah. a Toy Story Randy Newman song. <laughs> That's so cool. My legacy. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Like I, I, um, I, you know, I was at Letterman for a long time and we, we would write jingles all the time. Incredibly spoiled, by the way, where it was like, oh, I want to do like a little jingle for this comedy bit or whatever. And yeah. it's like, all right, go, go downstairs and work with Paul Schaefer, you know, at, at, during his lunch break <laughs> and he'll help you bang out a song. And often you'd go down and like Johnny Cash would be hanging around getting ready to rehearse or, you know, like um, uh, P-Funk uh, Funkadelic guys are sitting in wow. for the show and they go like, oh, we'll help you out with the song. And it was just like this weird thing of like, oh yeah, when you need a song, you just go to the best musicians in all of history <laughs> to help you uh, do it. Um, That's incredible. I didn't know you were supposed to register anything until I got to the Simpsons and someone was like, oh, you got to get an ASCAP because yeah. these songs will forever be a trickle of money. Yeah. And, and, yeah That's so cool. I've, I've worked, uh, most of my career has taken place in, in animation and I, I don't know why, but like, for some reason, animation always wants you to write original music. So this is actually like the fourth time that it's been like, and it's always like the dumbest songs that like should never exist outside. Like they in no way are on the same shelf as like Uptown Funk, but you're just like, <laughs> all right, like I'm a registered songwriter for this like weird, you know, like dip my head in pee song. That's right, amazing. Right, exactly. I'll take it. <laughs> My my biggest, I have a couple like, um, I guess in the Simpsons go to Tokyo, there's like a knife goes in, knife comes out, guns <laughs> yeah. come out. There's like, it's only two words, but in the background, but it's technically a song. So that's wow. like a song wow. I, I wrote, you know. Um, but the big one that was really fun to do was um, the Canyon Era song. Uh, oh, incredible. We, we, like Tonic. actually, I was like really writing lyrics uh, with Dan Graney and I wrote that together. And we, we spent so a whole day as like 
Broadway lyricists like sitting and like, <laughs> what about this? What about that? That, 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 that like really like. Donnie, I didn't know you wrote that song. I'm genuinely on camera, mind blown. That is one of my favorite <laughs> Simpson songs. Like it really that is. appears on on one of those albums too, right? It's like songs in so. the key spring. It was yeah. on like those albums were on a loop like for my first car when it was like a CD player in the middle, you know. And yep. I love that song so much. It's Hank Williams III who sings it, right? Yeah. Something yeah. like that. I yep. love, so I just love the very Simpsons-y sequence of it going through a field and like several deer being butted <laughs> up into the sky. <laughs> I, I love that level of cartoon violence. It's very pleasing to me. So hats off to you. <laughs> it was very funny because it was like, we needed the sequence and, and um, it was like one day in the room and we we're like, Dan, Donic, why don't you just go off and write this? And you're not just writing lyrics, you're writing visuals that go with the lyrics. There's like a weird extra level of like, it's not like what's the best song or what's the best joke. It's kind of both. It's like yeah. what lyric leads to the best visual and serves both purposes. So um, yeah, like like a, a deer killing machine was like, oh good, that's going to be a funny, I mean, there's a horrible, yeah. horrible version of that too, but that'll be a funny visual smells like a steak oh that's gonna be hard to visualize but maybe oh we'll see some steaks on the grill you know like trying to <laughs> yeah, come up yeah. with <laughs> how to that's justify really fun. yeah there's a, a lot of shared dna with that kind of like joke filled song structure and what crazy ex-girlfriend does i just re-listened to one of their albums and that don't be a lawyer song is like mm, perfectly right. Simpsons-y in the way that, and it, all of their songs, it's like, it feels like it's a conversation happening in real time that just happens to be sung, which right, I right. feel like makes it, it injects it with a little bit more life than your typical, like, you know, very um, staticky kind of song, you know? Yeah. Yeah, 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 no, I just think it's funny to think about that, like if the Beatles had to write all their lyrics so that there were funny visuals that would also come out of each other. It's like a weird... Yeah, weird. maybe their cartoon show would have been better. That's how Ringo yes. writes his yes. songs, but the other people <laughs> don't. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I just wanted to say that um, it's very fresh on our minds, but for um, uh, those listening today, there there are really cool Simpson songs that these kids wrote that uh, are part of music, and they're such legitimately cool, funny, just awesome songs and we'll make sure to link to that um on our uh, episode page so everyone could listen and love it because it's honestly it's great so one thing uh just in terms of your career that i'm sure you get a lot of questions about and um or at least some fan love over um just the fact uh, that you were the guy in the bear suit that is pretty exciting and letterman (laughs) That that was really fun because I get I get very nervous about acting and being in front of camera and found and I do enjoy it but it kills me you know and it's like oh. it take I, I think I found my parents were both actors and loved it and I grew up in a, ver- a variety of like regional theater and community theater they were both both um, so there's always a play going on there's always something going on. they were always performing and I was often pulled into that but I when I found a writing producing directing career I was like oh this is just as fun. I get to make people laugh, but I don't have to be, I can be the star of a writer's room, you know, and like be like joking around, but I don't, it's like, I don't have to be self-conscious about it because it's not going on TV. Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I feel you on that. My parents, I grew up in a similar kind of environment where my parents, they both came from the Bay area and then 
you know, uh, moved to LA to make it. And they did a lot of community theater, my mom especially. So my sister and I grew up in like black box theaters seeing <laughs> seeing the worst plays you've ever seen. But the heart <laughs> was there. <laughs> and my mom was always great. And she also did like costume stuff. So, you know, I feel like there's a part of me that, and I did stand up for 10 years. So I do have that performer side, but I'm not an actor by any stretch. It gets me really sweaty to like, have to embody a different character so i totally feel you with like i'll just be the star of the sidelines and if you could throw a mask in it you know like the bear thing or whatever i'm all for it <laughs> when the bear suit came up and i uh rob burnett who was the head writer at the time was like donic you can you'll be the guy in the bear suit and i was like great like i can be <laughs> i can be the star without being this known as the star yeah. you know like just it was like the best mm -hmm. but it was very it was that was actually very stressful in that um there was no hard jokes we were just doing it was an experiment we turn on a camera outside and then see if a guy in a bear suit could achieve something you know whether it was mm -hmm. hugging a stranger or we did one get try to get in a strip club or hail a cab but get a free hot dog there were just things so you'd watch this thing play out and um i would have an earpiece in so i could hear letterman who uh you know i had a relationship with as a writer and sometimes as the head writer later in my career and felt the pressure of delivering comedy. But this was like an unknown thing where we're on the street. It might not be funny, we don't know what's gonna happen, but I, you know, there's not much you can do once you're in this weird rented bear suit from a Broadway prop shop um, and real people to like force it to get funnier. So, uh, <laughs> and you, you, you kind of just be at the mercy of New York City. So there were a couple of weird things that one was, it was like a hundred plus degrees in October one time, just a random heat wave. And I was out in the bear suit just sweating and sweating and sweating. And the idea was, can a guy in a bear suit steal a pumpkin? And so I went to a deli, grabbed a pumpkin and tried to run away, but the bear suit was way too long. So my feet <laughs> didn't touch the ground, like they were tripping over stuff and I was running. And um, Dave's security guy actually had to stop the guy from, um, from, I don't know if he was going to gun me down, but he, he, oh he, was, <laughs> he would have taken, he would have taken me out and it was about three blocks away. So I ran three blocks with this giant pumpkin because I thought it was better on camera. <laughs> uh, so, so Donic, you mentioned that uh, you uh, were born into a pretty creative household. Both your parents uh, were performers. So was the path always kind of clear that you would end up doing something in the realm of, of writing or performing? Kind of talk to us about how you got into the industry and at what age you started kind of experimenting with your talent. Yeah, I think um, comedy was always, I, you know, I only recently have been starting to think about it this way, but like comedy was like the first drug I was exposed to, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. from, from a very early age, I, I was able to go like, oh, Monty Python, or I mean, everybody does this. I'm not saying I had a special talent, but it, <laughs> felt, it felt like it meant more to me than anything else. I, it felt so good, like taking a drug, you know, like it yeah. made me feel like everything in the world makes sense when Charlie Chaplin was doing this, when Bill Murray was doing that, when Steve Martin was doing this, you'd, you'd suddenly go like, oh yeah, this, 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 this is all right. I, I, I want that. I want more of that. You know, I was immediately yes. addicted. And, mm -hmm. then, and then it became clear that that it was like a, not only can you take this drug, but you can also make this drug and sell it. Um, <laughs> and, and, and not that you can be a dealer, I guess, more than selling it. It was more important that like, I can make people laugh and getting people to laugh felt as good. You know, you were like, mm -hmm. oh yes, more of that, more of that. So um, yeah. 
I think it was just like, oh, that, 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 uh, that's something I can contribute to this lousy planet is a few laughs and, uh, and it also feels pretty good. So I'm going to, I'm going to run towards that as much as I can. <laughs> I love how anti-dare program your way of describing that was. Very pro-Walter White. Yeah, yeah, what's going on in your life. But yeah, I totally relate to what you just said. I, one of my earliest memories, my dad was a comedian too, while my mom was acting. And um, so I, I, feel like I was maybe four or five years old and one of my earliest memories was like going to some daycare center turning to a table full of like block toys and being like how can I make this funny right, right. <laughs> which is like the most Where's precocious the fucking line? story ever <laughs> like, I was five no. and I was like gotta work for those tricks <laughs> yeah yeah yes and I also think I I mean I had I had a little bit of a chaotic childhood, you know, the, the divorces and, and yeah. stuff, but also, you know, my parents met in regional theater in Washington, DC, they were arena stage. And, and I think like, like your mom, Julia, my mom was a, a, a ward, she did wardrobe and acted and my dad yeah. did, did set design and acted. And they were in this cool. great theater company with like James Earl Jones and, and um, cool. Renee Obergemont, Obe all these like great character actors who for years they've been like, that's Ned Beatty. He was our friend. He lived on the houseboat next to us and we would do this and this and this. And I was like, what, where, what? But, yeah, um, that's my childhood too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so they, when that was in 68 is when I was born and by 69, Washington was on fire and they're like, let's get out of here. And they uh, moved out to Nantucket Island where my dad's family had summered and spent time for about a hundred years. He had been visiting in various things, not him, but his family. They basically were like, let's hide out on this island where we can like live in a barn and grow weed and do theater. And they, they took over mm -hmm. as much as they could, the community theater there and did shows together for about seven years. And then they got divorced. And then they're in a very small town where there's not enough theater for two people who don't want to really be in the same room anymore. So my dad, <laughs> right. my dad started another theater uh, and uh, he would, they would each do one man, one woman shows and compete for the headlines in the small town paper for incredible. Exhausting. And it was always, <laughs> the conversation was always like, Hey guys, there's this thing called an Atari. It's like video games. You get to play your TV. And my mom would be like, I know, but I really want to do, Agnes of God this year, and we need to put the money towards uh. this, uh, <laughs> this out, <laughs> this wardrobe. And I'm sorry, maybe next year. So I think also part of my my uh, drive was maybe there's a way, you know, to make money at this. What's a way where you can make money at this and still have fun making stuff? You know that that there's you don't have to like sacrifice everything just to do the show all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's such a great lesson. Yeah, yeah. I aimed pretty hard at Letterman from a young age. I just loved that show and, and aimed like, oh, if I could get in the door at a place like that, then I could probably do this in the same way where I could also pay the bills and, and, uh, not, and also have an Atari. <laughs> yeah. Did you get the Atari, Donick? Did you ever get it? I did. We got an Atari. I, I started it with the cool, the a great thing about growing up in Nantucket was they would let you get a job very early. So I, my first job was washing dishes at 12 and they would pay you under the table. It was very high salary. So I, like I was, I, I mean, probably not that year, but like by 13, 14, you would work a 60 hour week in the summer and then maybe a 20, 30 hour week during the school year. But you'd have a stack of cash at the end of the week to buy Amazing. Ataris and mo mopeds and uh, whatever you, you're, uh, you could 
I think at the time it was Pony Sneakers was the, uh, the uh, big brand that you wanted to have. So I think actually why I now look at comedy as a drug is because it is, I think music and comedy for me are these two things that are, that don't actually kill you. They actually give you more life and Absolutely. they're to yeah. totally safe. You know, they're drugs you can't overdose on. Books too, I think. I mean, that sounds so lame, but. Um, <laughs> it does sound a little bit like Marge Simpson. <laughs> <I'm just laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because I just made this documentary, Have a Good Trip, Adventures on Psychedelics. And I did a bunch of podcasts about psychedelics and everyone's like, oh, so everyone should do acid, right? And I'm like, well, I don't actually think that. I think there's so many Almost any experience you want to have, there are a hundred books about it and a hundred documentaries and a hundred great films and a, and a thousand artists who have done some version of exploring that. Do that first before you, you know, just eat a handful yeah. of whatever, you know, like try, <laughs> you can experience it in a lot of ways and figure out how it might affect you and if it's even something you want to do. I would say with like any level of like mental health self-care too, you know, like if there is something, and this is just my personal opinion with psychedelics, which I haven't done, but I'm open to doing, but I can also see like, you know, if, if there's something that you don't want a door to open to that psychedelics would open that door, then I don't think it's for you, <laughs> you know, right. there's no right. shame in that. Uh, a, a bit of a credit to uh, your movie, Donic. I texted this to you, but I, I want to record it and share it with the world that Have a Good Trip, your documentary. I enjoyed it so much, and it is what encouraged me to do mushrooms, which I had never done uh, until watching that. I, I didn't really even have that much of an interest, even though a lot of my favorite artists have done them and loved them. I always thought, like, yeah, it's just not for me. And uh, I think the way that you presented the the topic was great and it's what I look for in any documentary where it's not trying to sway you in one direction or another. It's just informing you in a really fun and interesting way. I really liked the different uh, scientific aspects to the documentary and like actually kind of exploring uh, the ways that mushrooms have been used in very helpful ways and how kind of the funding um, towards research has been capped or kind of even shut down like during periods of the world, I guess, and uh, how it's kind of a shame because like there's more and more that we could continue to learn and that hopefully we do continue to learn. Maybe one day it'll be legal. You never know. Um, but I had a great trip and it was very awesome and super cool. And that's something I never, ever, ever thought I would do. And uh, I owe it to your movie. And this is not me saying everyone else should go do it, but it was right for me and it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's that's amazing. And I'm, I'm so happy you had a good trip and, uh, you know, had, had fun. And what, what was your big takeaway? Well, my big takeaway, it's, it's, well, I'll share one little story. I did them with my friend, Alexis and uh, we both had gotten tested and we had quarantined leading up to it and we felt like let's uh, share this experience with each other. Neither of us um, uh, had any type of circumstances where we felt we were in any way in danger to one another. So obviously don't do mushrooms without getting tested and being safe. Um, but uh, she and I went outside and they had just kind of kicked in and uh, you know, this fly flew between us. It kind of just buzzed right past us. And my friend Alexis said, uh, what's the rush? 
<laughs> and it made us laugh so <laughs> hard because <laughs> it really encap it really encapsulated the drug experience of like that is such a thing that someone who was on trucks would say but it also was really true and you know we uh, after the trip had ended, we we sat outside waiting on the grass for my boyfriend to come pick me up. And it brought us back to kind of, you know, childhood or high school days when you need your parents to come pick you up. And, you know, we didn't have our phones on, which was really cool. We just were waiting to see when he would arrive instead of like getting a text from my boyfriend that he was there. And then there was this motorcycle that, you know, and this is six hours later, but like this motorcycle zoomed past and we just had that moment of like, what's the rush? And it was this really <laughs> cool thing. Um, and then one I other, me too. And then <laughs> one other really quick lesson is I cried a lot, but it was very cathartic and it was really cool. And um, I opened up a coloring book and um, my friend Alexis had gone to the bathroom and when she came back, I was sobbing <laughs> hysterically, but smiling. Um, and I just said like, I don't have to color in the lines. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> I was like really blown away <laughs> by this very basic knowledge. But it's the little things, you know? <laughs> it's the little things. And, and I think one of the things that is interesting and a good reminder is like, both of those are very profound ideas if you feel them in a profound way. They're exactly. also very very silly and surface if you feel in that way, you know, but mm -hmm. exactly. often what's cool about psychedelics is it takes you to a place where you can, can feel something that you suddenly understand in a new way that is, is profound and can change your life. Whether it's just, yeah, you don't need to rush so much, slow down. Like mm -hmm. that, if you actually do that, that is a profound life change, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and not coloring the lines. Yes. That's, that's a Hallmark card, but it's also a, amazing like thing that we should all feel like we should you know like it, exactly. it would change the world if we all felt that you know exactly um, yeah a little injection of therapy in that moment <laughs> so donic you come across to me as someone who uh really just has a cool life uh and you kind of just seem like someone who who really gets themselves and and really has like a comfort in your own skin and it's very uh, infectious too, I would say. I think that you're an easy presence to be around. But I'm wondering, you know, as you were kind of coming up in the industry or even just coming up as an individual, how often you were kind of uh, going through maybe more of the nerves or any paranoia or uh, insecurities along the way? Mm -hmm. Or have you always mm -hmm. kind of had a bit of a, because your parents are this one way, I I'm just curious of your evolution to who you are today yeah yeah i know look I, a lot of my career was i was terrified uh you know i think anytime you start a job there's butterflies and you you know like um i i was terrified at letterman i was terrified at the simpsons i was terrified even <laughs> at like new girl 20 years later i was terrified at park, <laughs> parks and recreation when i came in to run the room like i was hired to literally like step in and run the room and i was like how am I going to do this? I don't know if I could do this. You always have a little bit of that. Um, I think, um, you know, one of the nice things about COVID is, is going like, yeah, none of it really matters. Like we, you know, yeah. if, it, if, mm -hmm. it, if it's not like, let's just do the things we like and are good at and, and comfortable with. But I do think there's some, some parts of, you know, being nervous and nerves are because you want something, you want to do, do a good job at it. And those, 
things push you to find that with the work you have to do to get there. So I don't always think it's a bad thing. Um, um, I guess, you know, I, 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 I think I had a lot of um, the, the I, I feel sort of bad. I'm, like I have two kids and I'm raising, watching how they're raising it, it. It sends you on these like flashbacks of what you went through as a kid and stuff. And I feel like running the gauntlet of seventh, eighth, ninth grade or whatever. And the monsters I grew up with who you had to exist with and share the planet with were like this training ground for me of like, I can build a, a comedy veneer that will save me. Yeah. And so that I, I kind of learned it out of survival, but but that was like a place to protect yourself more than it was yeah. like, what's funny? This could be fun. It was more like, mm-hmm. oh, I've got to build a some armor to get through this because this, this, you know, it's tough out there, you know? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, diffuse the attacks. Yeah, d- diffuse the attacks. And as soon as I was like, oh, I can dis- disarm any any kind of monster, <laughs> that <I'll, laughs> like you started to feel like, oh, I could be okay. You know, there, there were... Anyway, so I think that served me well when I would get to shows uh, and be nervous. And I often am the guy I'm like, all right, I'm just going to start pitching right away and get the get the nerves out. Even if these are like five fails in a row that they're just like, wow, that guy's not funny at all. At <laughs> least I, I hear my own voice and I'm starting to fit in. And, you know, like um, it does get easier. Like, I think now weirdly it's like in the last 10 years when i start on a show people are like oh my god i'm such a fan of the simpsons oh my god i love the whatever you know like there's a little bit of like oh right yeah i did those things that does help me like reset but (laughs) that's just like it took 30 years to get to that point and uh, (laughs) yeah that doesn't mean anything anyway because you're only really as good as your last joke or pitch or story Mm -hmm. oh no anyway (laughs) (laughs) i think to, to some extent yeah, I I think that advice though of like, you know, sort of what you described of dealing with your nerves when you start a new job and, you know, just pitching out like, you know, whatever's at the top of your head and just to sort of dust off the cobwebs. I feel like dusting off the cobwebs in many different forms can help you at the many different stages of if you're still in middle school and you're listening to this and you're trying to, you know, diffuse the <laughs> beating from other bullies or whatever by being funny or if you're starting a new job, if you're aspiring to be a writer. Um, I'm a big proponent of like, just keep writing so that you don't feel the pressure of this is this next thing has been six months in the wait making because I haven't been, you know, writing or this next thing is the thing that's going to be my ticket out of here. I feel like the more you dust off the cobwebs and just keep that flow going, the less pressure it has and the less it will psych you out. So you can just go, well, this is what I do. I'm, I'm just writing and I, I love brainstorming and going 20 bad ideas and just like having the mindset of being like, these are the worst ideas I'm ever going to come up with. And then of course, it never is because, you know, you've taken the pressure off. And so now you're not being as precious with it. I think there's also this thing of like, if you're going to do this for a career, you're going to have to generate 10,000 ideas, you yeah. know, at, at somehow or, or whatever. So you might as well just start. <laughs> and, yeah. And, there's no, get, there's nothing bad that can come from that. <laughs> uh, oh, I was just, gonna, I was just gonna add the other part of that, that I think is a huge secret that, is maybe not a secret at all, but it's just like the fear of failure is a huge thing. And like getting used to failing and uh, whether it's like, I think I really started to learn that when I was doing these fundraisers for charity is like, I have to ask 
10 people to come and help out with a fundraiser to get one person to do anything. And it's like, well, that's nine times you've failed and been rejected and whatever. And if you live in that, you'll just never do anything. If you live in the one person who shows up and helps out, that's really exciting and you're making something and doing something. So I think it's the same with ideas. It's like throw out a bunch of ideas. The one that sticks is going to be really fun because you're making it, you know? Totally. Yeah, yeah. All right, listeners, why don't you guys go fail and tell us about it on Twitter and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Joe Firestone. And I'm Manolo Moreno. And we host After Game Show, a podcast where listeners submit games and we play them regardless of quality with a dozen listeners from around the world. We've had folks call in from as far as Sweden, South Africa, and the Philippines. Here's an example. This is a game we call Zooey Deschanel, where you turn a celebrity's name into an animal pun. You have an example, Manolo? Brad Gorilla Pit. Oh, that's a pun on Gorilla Pit? Yep. I don't know. If that's, that's Brad Pitt. Oh, okay. That's a high quality game that you yeah. could expect. Dr. Game Show has new episodes every other Wednesday on Maximum Fun. Check us out, please. I listen to Bullseye because Jesse always has really good questions. What did John Malkovich wear when he was 20? <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. There's always that moment where Jesse asks a question that the person he's interviewing has not thought of before. I don't think anyone's ever said that to me or acknowledged that to me, and that is so real. Bullseye, interviews with creators you love and creators you need to know. From MaximumFun.org and NPR. So uh, how how did the uh, progression work for you in terms of um, uh, you you got Letterman, which is incredible, and uh, I am sure that having that on your resume is is really something that can propel you. But did you ever have spans in between jobs where, well, first of all, did you ever have big breaks in between your jobs at all? Um, and uh, and if so, what were those like? Because I. Uh, have certainly been in the position, and I think a lot of people who are starting out, especially, can go uh, several years without working. You know, and we'll have yeah. to do freelance or consider like other types of jobs. What What was your experience like? Yeah, there's definitely there's there's I guess I'd just call them lulls or whatever. Is that 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 um, yeah? There's certain times where even if you've done, I mean, you know. 20 shows or whatever. And then suddenly there's like, wow, my, this year did not line up with the schedule with anything to staff on or a project I wanted to do, or the things that I was lining up all got, didn't get funded or whatever it is. And then suddenly you're like looking at, at, you know, the next month being like wide open or six weeks or whatever. Um, I think the, the, so yes, that I think that happens to everybody. Honestly, I think the, the thing with show business is that like, it, this is also sounds cliche, but no one really knows why anything gets made. It's it's this random mix of good of timing and good luck and a good idea, good enough idea that happens to line up with the right talent and a and a distribution channel or somebody who just got some money who wants to who likes that idea. Like you can't control at least fifty percent of the reason you work in in this. You know, I think we all get bogged down with like maybe you should have an agent and a manager and a life coach and a you know, like a trainer and whatever, and then I'll get a job. Um, it's always, it's always just like, again, just going back to writing the, the couple I had 
you know, my first, I did an internship at Letterman initially, and, and that really was just like, there was an opportunity, I went in and loved the show, and knew if I could get on a show that I loved, that I would be, I didn't know that, but now I know, it's like, if you can get, get on a show, even in the door, an intern or a writer's assistant or whatever it is, um, at a place that you really get the voice, and it really fits your sensibility, when those openings come for you to pitch stuff, you will be much better at it than if you're on a show that you're like, it's a job, and then you're trying to fit mm -hmm. your voice or match what, you know, Betty White jokes about. I don't know what Betty White <laughs> does. Like, I'll be bad at that, you know, or whatever. Um, I don't know why I picked Betty White. She actually is a lovely woman and uh, have worked with her a couple times. She's always fun. Um, but um, after I was an intern, I got offered a job at HBO was starting something called the Comedy uh, Comedy Channel, which eventually became Comedy Central. Um, and I was there for the for about a year and a half. And it was it was in 13 million homes sprinkled across the country on certain cable networks. But I I was a PA initially, but suddenly was able to write material because there's very few of us there. So I was writing and then I was directing segments and then I was doing sort of Chris Elliott segments where I was acting and I was like, oh, showbiz is so easy. I'm just doing this stuff. And then they shut the channel down. No. And I was like, I'm like, well, I'm a writer performer now. This is great. And it was like, well, I don't, what happens with that? I was so young too. I was like 19 and didn't really know what to do with that. And I, I got a job on Clarissa Explains It All as the post supervisor. It was just a job that I was offered. And I took that and went to Orlando and was suddenly sitting in an edit room on the Universal Studios tour, helping edit a sitcom like with Melissa Joan Hart. And they were all very nice and it was fine. But I was like, this is not the career yeah. I want, like, what am I doing? Um, and that was sort of the, that was the a first wake up call of like, if you don't keep pushing towards the things you want, you're not gonna end up at them. You're just gonna suddenly become, we often think of it as ocean trash, just sort of floating and <laughs> whatever. Mm -hmm. and, and, and as much fun as- Appropriate for went, Orlando. As <laughs> yes, yes, that felt like, oh my God, what is this place? Um, They're proud but, ocean trash though, all those fine citizens of Florida, sorry. All, all good, and we had a wonderful time in, in Orlando, but it was really, really like, it felt like all fake because it was all Applebee's and it was all corporate, right. you know, every, everything. Right. And like, I remember we would go to um, Bennigan's was like, there was a Bennigan's that had like fake memorabilia on the walls that had mm -hmm. been collected and and then put together in a warehouse somewhere and then put in all the locations. <laughs> but it felt like, and they would play like, just the, not the worst, but like, you know, Bruce Springsteen songs or something, which I didn't particularly care about. Love Bruce, he's a great guy, loved his whole thing, but never really liked his music. And you'd go there though, and I just remember on Friday nights being like, oh, thank God we're at like a real place because there's like memorabilia and rock and roll. And like, this, this is Bennigan's, what is happening to me? That's anyway, so funny. Well, that was definitely a time where I was like, oh no, butterflies. I've got to get, I've got to steer. So you have to steer your career a little bit and, and keep it aimed at things you love. And how yeah. did you do that after that? You know, because you're employed, did you just up and quit or did you wait until another opportunity came? I did, um, I did two, uh, I think they were like six week production cycles. So you go to Orlando and then you'd have four weeks off and then you'd go back. And I came back and during those four weeks, I wrote a submission packet for Letterman and was like, please, and put all the stuff I had done at the Comedy Channel together. I was like, 
I'm ready to be a writer there. You guys know me. Look at this stuff. Please, please, please hire me. And nothing happened. And then Clarissa Explains All started again. And I had to go back to Orlando. And I was like, oh, no, oh, no. And um, in the middle of that, by the end of that second production cycle, I guess it was the end of the first season or something, um, Letterman called and was like, we have a spot for you. And I was so excited. And then I, I, I went in to talk to Steve O'Donnell, who is a wonderful human. Um, but that meeting was, no, no, not as a writer, as the writer's assistant. And I went, ah! And uh. I actually had to take a pay cut from being a post supervisor. But it, it was, again, it was just like, oh, I'm in the door. I'm in the door. Just get back to a place you love to go in every day, you know? Um, That's great advice. So. Yeah. I, I, I really think that those two pieces of advice are really good in terms of like, you know, you have to really see where it is that you want to go and actively take the steps to get there. I think for a lot of people in any industry, I would imagine, um, but particularly showbiz, there's a level of, uh, you know, if you're if you're naturally talented and you're really uh, great at what you do, um, there can be a sense of like, you know, when is Hollywood going to find me? Like, when are they going to put me, right. uh, when am I going to get the call? Um, and that's why you sometimes see people who maybe aren't as talented, um, uh, but are so hardworking and are really easy and fun to be around to like, they really deserve the success. Um, sometimes more than the super, super talented person who doesn't really, um, go for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like you can't read deadline and you can't read, like listen <laughs> to that chatter because none of it makes any sense. It's not rational. Yeah. And so you can't take yeah. it personally. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I was also, I was going to say that, like, I don't, I used to believe that there were the, like, true genius savant, most talented people, like Charlie Kaufman brain, who, like, and maybe this is because I went to film school and I was surrounded by jerks, usually men, sorry, um, who presented themselves as being these types of people. Maybe I dated some of them. I don't (laughs) know. those people actually exist without a work ethic or they, I don't think they find success without it. I, I don't think that there is a strong population of people who are just naturally gifted in a way that doesn't require them to sweat a little. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. I think that you need to have both and, and maybe they exist and I haven't seen them because they don't have any humility <laughs> enough <laughs> to, you know, take the jobs that are picking up trash or getting coffee in order to, you know, like build up those um, work habits that allow them to, you know, really shine in, in a way that feels earned. But mm, that's my two cents. No, no, I feel like really lucky in a way that like when I was, when I was young and like had plenty of like, hit points in a way like you could take a mm-hmm. lot of 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 like uh not bad abuse but like you can you can put up with a lot when you're young because you're at a place you want to work and one of my first jobs was getting like there was this thing where dave ate a pineapple every night before he would go on the air and, <laughs> and like they, they cut it up but he needed a fresh pineapple and somebody always had to go out into manhattan and find at a deli a fresh pineapple and if you came back and the pineapple wasn't right, Dave wasn't going to eat it. And that was going to ruin the show. Like it was always this stage. And I'm like, wow. now I'm like, that, that is crazy. That is so crazy. But I didn't give a shit. I was happy to go get Dave's pineapple. That was like a great mission. Cause you were such a big part of making the show. And I guess, you know, part of, 
part of working in working your way up through the system is understanding all the departments and that this is a team sport and you can't make a show without the person who gets the wardrobe and the person who gets the food and the person who gets the pineapple and that they are kind of all in it together and if you're just like a jerk at the top and don't acknowledge that then all of those little pieces aren't going to be very good you know if, mm-hmm. if all the people feel like they're contributing and and heard and part of the process it they're all better you know, and your, your show's better. Everyone shows better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Julia, you, uh, early on into me knowing you, I, I, I was always very struck by your comparison of like, uh, it, it being like a band and like, you can't have everybody oh, yeah. in the band be the front man, like every, and like you, you're only as good as your drummer and like, you need every, <laughs> you need everybody to be able to bring their own thing. And, you know, uh, yeah. that also comes from not comparing yourself to the other musical instrument because it's just like well I don't play that instrument <laughs> like, right so, that, that right. came you know? out of imposter syndrome where I would be in rooms and you know somebody like Brian Weissall who is a brilliant animator and writer like I'd be in a room with him and he would pitch these jokes that were just incredible and weird and came out of a brain that I didn't possess and I would instantly get so so very jealous and I'd beat myself up in that very type a perfectionist way baby i'd be like why am i not working hard enough to generate these jokes and then it became (laughs) this moment of like oh no no that's the instrument he plays like you play something completely different you may not even know the instrument that you play maybe you have to wait until somebody else to tell you what that instrument is um but you know rest assured you're here for a reason and that has helped me you know with quell that like fear of the imposter syndrome so many times still it's still there oh don't forget it's still there (laughs) but it keeps me keeps me alive (laughs) (laughs) but no uh, for sure i i often feel that still of just like i don't think i necessarily fit in here and or whatever and there are shows i've been on shows where i'm like oh i don't get this culture really you know i don't you know where nothing major that i've gone on i usually take those jobs or seek those jobs but every once in a while like um you're just a show where you're like oh this is a totally different way of looking at comedy comedy is subjective so it's like a there's a huge world of different ways of making jokes and doing stuff and yeah i mean the advice if not the world it's all about advice but it's like yeah finding what find what you're good at you know focus you know focus on that and foster that and and Mm -hmm. be, be happy that you're good at something and just do that don't worry yeah, about it. that's such great advice because I feel like, you know, so often creatives, especially aspiring creatives, look at the scarcity and they look at like, okay, I'm weak in this one area, which means I'm going to overwork and like really go for this area. But, you know, there is something really great and truthful about like, okay, what are you actually good at? Let's just strengthen those tools and maybe that'll open up something you didn't know existed. You'll, you'll do a lot better in a career where you're doing a bunch of things you're good at rather than imitating something that you're not very good at and doing a lot of that. <laughs> like, yeah. no one wants that. <laughs> um, so uh, I was just wondering if there were any um, particular moments uh, in your career or particular titles or projects that you are just so proud of, something that really excites you. It's, it's so hard. I'm actually really, I'm bad at cataloging my my stuff, you know, and remembering exactly, uh, you know, like, oh, right. Um, every time, every once in a while, like, 
my son just went back there and watched a ton of Simpsons. And it was really fun to just be like the seasons I was there. Suddenly you'd be like, Oh my God, I remember pitching that joke, like, and, and, and being proud of it again and stuff. Um, I think, uh, you know, um, it's funny, something just popped up on YouTube recently, for some reason I saw it, but um, I had written a viewer mail letter for Letterman where Dave, Dave's like, oh, it was like something about, do you, how do you pay, like, pay for something? He's like, oh, I have a way to get a little extra money. And then it was like, it was this letter where Dave goes down to the commissary at NBC. So this is way back at, at late night with David Letterman. Goes down to the commissary, orders a whole bunch of mashed potatoes, takes the mashed potatoes and puts them on his head. And then he goes to the payroll window and is like, paycheck for Phil Donahue. Who, this is ancient history, but Phil Donahue had white hair and the payroll lady is like, here you go, Mr. Donahue. And then he would take his paycheck. And it was this such a convoluted like layers of jokes of like, it's funny that Dave put mashed potatoes in his hair, but it's smart because he's doing it for a reason. So it's like this that mix of <laughs> smart and stupid all at, at once. I was like, oh, oh yeah. I think that was the first like bit I wrote that I was like, I think I figured out smart stupid. And and then wanting to to live in that space, you know, for as long oh, as yeah. possible. That's the best space. Silly, dumb, smart, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that, because uh, I know that you and I bonded, Donick, over kind of the, um, like I have, and Julia does too. We both have relationships with our dads um, and our moms as well, but our dads would like really spoon feed us a lot of really awesome music and shows and the Simpsons. And uh, it was a really cool experience for us and uh, is a huge, um, you know, aspect of our lives. And you have that with your kids, but, uh, has, uh, have they shown an, an interest in, uh, in the showbiz lifestyle as well? Or do you know, kind of like what they're wanting to do as they get older? What has that been like for you as a parent? Yeah. Oh my God. Well, it's, it's a couple things. One, it's been really fun to watch stuff with the with kids as they grow up because it allows you to watch things through their eyes and take some of your critical like it's not even critical thinking but just go like oh right this isn't made for me this is made for them look how happy they are and now i can actually enjoy it i guess i'm specifically thinking about the middle trilogy of star wars films like, <laughs> we, we watched those and we're like those are good they're fun look how much fun he's having so it it it, it brought more life uh, more joy to life um my son is a drummer. He's got like a little rock band and, and has a blast doing that. I think he's got a very strange, wonderful and, and unexpected sense of humor and keeps me on my toes. And um, really, uh, sometimes it's just very goofy and weird. And sometimes it's, it's like, oh, wow, he just like, that was like three levels of a joke that I didn't think of. Like, uh-oh, here comes the next generation, whether, uh, you know, whether I'm ready or not. Um, so that's <laughs> fun. We, we, we do laugh a lot and goof around. And my daughter is, um, she's like a STEM star, you know, like she just rocketed through wow. um, school in a way that I couldn't ever have done and, and didn't understand and, and has like, 15 AP classes and is killing them all and whatever. And then we got to COVID and she was like, I just wrote a screenplay. And I was like, what? And uh, she wrote this wonderful screenplay. She started like watching movies. She'd watch two movies every day and has done like the full history of cinema on her own. Um, and it's I just- that list know. of movies. <laughs> yeah, me too. So any given day, it's been like, I just watched four Fellini films. Here's what oh I took God. away. And, and, so that's been also really fun to go back through, you know, um, 
and and people I don't even know like Maya Darren I don't I like I wasn't aware of this filmmaker that she loves and so um, have watched these art films from the 40s that she's like here's why these are the best but yeah she knocked out a screenplay seemed like effortlessly you know like and wow um, you must be so proud yeah super super proud and super interested to see where her perspective takes her you know she's got very different eyes on all of this than I do and and um, you know, a great sense of humor, but also she's not not afraid to like turn it all upside down and and knock it over and stuff. And I'm like, oh, good, that's good. <laughs> she's gonna knock some stuff over. Yeah, that's, that's so great. Cool. <laughs> oh my that's God. amazing. Um, well, Donic, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. This was such a blast. Uh, are there any things that you would like to plug? Oh, oh, tell us about some of the uh, Christmas gifts that are going to be up on uh, Muzak or some of the ways people oh, can yeah. support because that was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, you can go to Muzak.org and make a donation, M-U-S-A-C-K.org. We're going to do a Christmas pop-up, so that'll be up starting maybe after Thanksgiving. I think we'll have it up, but um, we've had a whole bunch of celebrities and friends contribute stuff so anything things as varied as like um a courtney love signed album to malcolm mcdowell signed clockwork orange stuff i we have some mr sparkle and simpson stuff we got some amazing alan alda did some great signings for us for of mash stuff that i have never seen anything like anywhere that are cool but it's i it, it should be a great way to go on find very interesting, unique gifts, and all the money will go to support kids' music programs. So a good way to spend your holiday budget and support I love that. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Donick. Um, and then uh, if you could just uh, tell people where to find you online. Sure. Um, you can go to my website, donickcarry.com. It's a pretty straightforward way to find me. And then I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and have various handles and stuff. But um, but yes, follow. Um, you can follow also Have a Good Trip. Uh, the movie is, um, we, we're posting stuff all the time in the psychedelic space. And, um, and uh, yeah, stay in touch, everybody. Awesome. And, yeah. uh, and Julia, where can people find you? Ah, thanks so much for asking. I'm actually a press gun on all the things. Allie, where can people find you? Thank you so much for asking. You could find me at Allie Gertz and all the things, uh, assuming my Twitter was ever given back to me by the time this airs. We'll see. Um, and uh, you could find us at Simpsons Pod. Yeah, and Round Springfield is a production of Maximum Fund. We are a member-supported show, so go to MaximumFun.org slash join to contribute. This episode was engineered by Gabe Mara. Our booking manager is Jesus Ambrosio, and our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Swish. Swish. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.